tell you what I want you to do tonight also. Find 2 Chronicles 25. Because it's going to be very difficult to understand everything going on in 2 Kings 14 and 15 if you don't pair it up with 2 Chronicles 25. So I'll probably have us read that as well. Okay? A lot of reading tonight. Let's go ahead and read chapter 14. And uh, we'll probably go into the first part of chapter 15 and then go over to Second Chronicles. So lots and lots of reading tonight. Also, don't forget BT classes that begin Sunday night. I hope you're signed up to be in one of those. And if you're a deacon, I'm looking for you to be in my class Sunday night. We're going to do some deacon training. Totally different from that we've been doing during the year. Okay? But anyway, got a men's group, women's group, uh, different, different things going on Sunday night. Okay, looking tonight at the subject matter, the march toward destruction. It's kind of becoming the same song in the second verse, isn't it? Or should we say the second, same song, 30th verse by now? <clears throat> uh, begin reading with me in verse 1. In the second year of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoiada. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything he followed the example of his father, Joash. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put the children of the assassins to death in accordance with what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. He was the one who defeated 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and captured Selah in battle, calling it Jokthael, the name it has to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, with the challenge, Come, let us face each other in battle. But Jehoash... Uh, king of Israel replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon, give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You have indeed defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant. Glory in your victory, but stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Amaziah, however, would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. 
Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 400 cubits long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. He also took hostages and returned to Samaria. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, what he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and Jeroboam, his son, succeeded him as king. This would be Jeroboam II. Amaziah, son of Jehoash, uh, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jeho Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. As for the other events of Amaziah's reign, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? They conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. He was brought back by horse and was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. Then all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his ancestors. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo, Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them, and since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did and his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was uh, Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The Lord afflicted the king with leprosy until the day he died, and he lived in a separate house. Jothan, the king's son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. 
As for the other events of Azariah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Azariah rested with his ancestors and was buried near him in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 25 of 2 Chronicles. This is going to make sense, I hope, of some of the conflict between Judah and Israel. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoiada. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. After the kingdom was firmly in his control, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put their children to death, but acted in accordance with what is written in the law. In the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, parents shall not be put to death for their children, nor children be put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. And Isaiah called the people of Judah together and assigned them according to their families to commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He then mustered those 20 years old or more and found that there were 300,000 men fit for military service, able to handle the spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel for a hundred talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, Your Majesty, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel not with any of the people of Ephraim. Even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or to overthrow. Amaziah asked the man of God, but what about the hundred talents I paid for these Israelite troops? The man of God replied, the Lord can give you much more than that. So Amaziah dismissed the troops who had come to him from Ephraim and sent them home. They were furious with Judah and left for home in a great rage. Amaziah then marshaled his strength and led his army to the Valley of Salt where he killed 10,000 men of Seir. The army of Judah also captured 10,000 men alive, took them to the top of a cliff and threw them down so that all were dashed to pieces. Meanwhile, the troops that Amaziah had sent back and had not allowed to take part in the war raided towns belonging to Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon. They killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. When Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought back the gods of the people of Seir. He set them up as his own gods, bowed down to them, and burned sacrifices to them. The anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent a prophet to him who said, Why do you consult this people's gods, which could not save their own people from your hand? While he was still speaking, the king said to him, Have we appointed you an advisor to the king? Stop. Why be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you, because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. After Amaziah, king of Judah, consulted his advisors, he sent this challenge to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. Come, let us face each other in battle. 
But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon, give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You say to yourself that you have defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant and proud, but stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Amaziah, however, would not listen. For God so worked that he might deliver them into the hands of Jehoash because they sought the gods of Edom. Now, let's see if we make sense of this tonight. Okay? Uh, there's a poet by the name of W.H. Autumn. He once said, political history is far too criminal and pathological to be a fit subject of study for the young. <laughs> Edward Gibbon, uh, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, defined history as little more than the register of crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Now, folks, as we're in this section of 2 Kings, we might be tempted to agree with the pessimism of those two writers. It seems that one king after another, whether they're in Judah or whether they're in Israel, one king after another is leading the people on a pathway to destruction. Now, last time we covered 2 Kings a few weeks back, we were looking at Israel. Uh, this week, we're going to be taken back to look at Judah. But then there's going to be a quick back and forth between Israel and Judah. And so tonight, we're going to see some of what's going on in both nations. And I've mentioned to you before, this is what you've got to keep straight in your Old Testament history. We're, we're witnessing Israel and Judah developing together. We're seeing parallel accounts, what's going on in each one. Because remember, since 1 Kings chapter 12, Israel became divided between Israel and Judah. Ten kings were in Israel. Uh, ten tribes were in Israel. Two in Judah. So from 1 Kings 12 following, the united country has become a divided kingdom. So now they're Israel or the northern kingdom and Judah or the southern kingdom. And for the rest of your Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you've got to discern whether you're dealing with Israel or whether you're dealing with Judah. Okay? Uh, Israel is going to end up being destroyed by the Assyrians, and Judah will be taken captivity into captivity by the Babylonians for 70 years. And then they're allowed to come back and rebuild. But until that happens, we're being shown why both Judah and Israel are deserving of God's judgment. Okay? In chapter, uh, in, in one chapter, <clears throat> we'll have a commentary on Israel. 
and its leadership. In the next chapter, we might have a commentary on Judah and its uh, leadership. Uh, one time, as we saw last, a few weeks back, Israel and Judah both had a king by the same name. So that really complicates things too, doesn't it? I just want you to understand how the writer is laying this out so you won't be confused. We're talking about two different kingdoms, Judah and Israel, two different kings and different prophets that would go to each king, different high priests, so that's the challenge in reading the Old Testament. You have to rotate back and forth from north to south, north to south, and their respective leaders. Now, today we continue to see the chain of disappointment in leaders. Uh, these chapters are an eye-opener on that verse in Scripture that talks about how people suffer when they are led by bad leaders. Leadership can be a blessing or leadership can be a curse on people. And for the most part, what are we seeing? We're seeing the curse of bad leadership. First thing I want you to notice with me tonight, when good men, we'd add women there too, speaking of men, mankind, when good men can be found, but godly men are in short supply. Verses 1 to 7. Amaziah, the son of the boy king Joash, is now the king. And we're told in chapter 14 that he did what was right, but not like David. What is it that the Scripture remembers about King David? He wholeheartedly did what God asked him. He had a heart for God. Some of the other kings would do right, but they didn't seem to have the heart for God that David had had. Did this mean that David was perfect? No. I mean, it's recorded on the pages of Scripture. The sin that he did with Bathsheba, then had Bathsheba's husband killed to try to cover it up. So, you know, he had his share of sin. But he repented of that. He got right with God. And David seems to be the king that set the standard for the other kings that would come after him, that he had a heart for God. Some of the other kings, like we read here, uh, they would do right in certain things, but then they didn't have that same heart. What's that showing us? What's God looking for in you and in me? He's looking for obedience, yes, but what else? Somebody said it. A heart for God. Yes. You know, it kind of reminds me of the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. They checked a lot of the right boxes. They were still doing a lot of the right things. But the Lord said to them, you don't love me the way you used to. Their heart wasn't in it anymore. 
God's not just looking for your obedience, which, by the way, again, is very important, but He's looking for your heart. Do you have a heart for God? And that's what so many of these kings seem to be missing. <clears throat> would God say that you're just a good man or a good woman, or would He also say that you're a godly man or a godly woman with a heart for Him? You know, there's a lot of good men and good women, but how many godly men and godly women are there? You know, the U.S. Army used to advertise in their old ads that they were looking for a few good men. Well, God is looking for a few godly men and women. Amaziah seemed satisfied to allow some degree of idolatry in the land, exposing that he did not have the heart that David did. He was pleasing for pleasing to God for much of what he did, but he didn't have a heart for God like David. You know, idolatry has got to be rooted out of our lives as well. God is a jealous God. He jealously desires us. He will not tolerate rivals. Is there any rival in your heart to Christ? If there is, it's got to be rooted out. It's got to be dealt with. Remember that the prophet Zechariah, the son of the high priest who had saved Joash's life, came with a word against Joash. Joash had him killed, if you remember that. And so Joash killed the son of the man who had saved his life. How about that for gratitude? So because of that, conspirators had killed Joash. Amaziah, Joash's son, takes over reign of the southern kingdom. And so now verse 5 tells us that Amaziah kills those who had killed his father. And I want you to notice that verse 5 doesn't condemn this. In fact, from verse 6, we see that the testimony of Amaziah was good because while he murdered his father's assassins, he did not murder their children. He followed the book of Deuteronomy in this and showed proper restraint by only dealing with the transgressors. And so verses 5 and 6 are included in the right, the good, that Amaziah did. Verse 7 continues showing the victory of Amaziah. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. We saw that in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 25. He recaptured a town by the name of Selah. Selah has been traditionally identified with the site of Petra which was almost an impenetrable fortress. And so here was an achievement of Amaziah to rightly be proud of. Defeating the Edomites and recapturing a city. 
Think about Edom a minute. Edom had been a long time troublesome neighbor to Israel. God had promised judgments on the Edomites because of their ways against Israel. So the fact that Amaziah has killed 10,000 of them here, recaptured a major city, is recorded as a good thing he did. He enacted God's judgment against the Edomites. I want you to remember his father, Joash, had only succeeded in getting rid of the Syrians by paying off Hazael, the king of the Syrians. So the fact that Amaziah had such a sweeping victory against the Edomites is shown here as a monumental thing. It's a good thing. And so no doubt the people of Judah think that they, they truly have something to celebrate. Their king Amaziah has dealt with the Edomites who God said he was going to judge. But the second thing I want you to see tonight from verses 8 to 22 is when pride goes before a fall. And here again is where 2 Chronicles 25 will help fill in some information here. Amaziah returns to Jerusalem and he is high on success. Have you ever been high on success? Maybe you accomplished something and you, man, you felt so good you almost felt invincible. But he foolishly brings the gods of the Edomites back with him. And he sets those gods, those false gods up to be worshipped. How foolish can a man be? God gives you victory over your enemy and you set up the false gods of the enemy that you just defeated and you worship those false gods. I mean, something's got to be missing up here. And so a prophet comes along and asks Amaziah, what in the world is he doing? He says, you know, think about your stupidity in setting up these gods to be worshipped. These gods didn't deliver the Edomites from your hands. What makes you think the Edomites' gods are going to do you any good? Amaziah basically tells him, be quiet. He says, have I hired you to be my counselor? That shows how irrational idolatry can be, right? And when somebody's in the wrong, they don't want to be confronted oftentimes, right? But again, tying in 2 Chronicles 25 with 2 Kings 14, we learn that before his defeat of the Edomites, Amaziah had hired some Israelite mercenary troops. He thought that his troops in Judah needed some strengthening to go against the Edomites. So he hires some Israelite mercenary troops. A prophet comes along and says, you need to trust God. You don't need to hire these Israelite forces. Uh, God will not be with them. And, and so at the condemnation of this prophet, Amaziah basically fires these troops, these Israelite mercenary troops. 
Because they are angry over being dismissed, because you see, they lost the opportunity to loot the enemy, to get rich off of the Edomites that they were going to loot. They're mad. They go back home, and on their way back home, they decide to attack some of the Judean city. If the Judean, if the Judean king is going to fire us and send us back home, we're going to attack some of his cities as we go back home, and we're going to kill some of his people and loot some of their goods. And he, they kill 3,000 people of Judah. And so right off the heels of killing 10,000 Edomites, when Amaziah gets back to Jerusalem and learns of all of this, he's angry that these troops that he's hired have done this. So he issues a challenge to the king of Israel. You know, bring it on. I'm ready to go to battle against you. Again, he's high on success. He comes back, he's ready to take vengeance against Israel for the 3,000 people of Judah who are now dead. Plus, there seems to be a marriage proposal between the king's children that's kind of gone sour, and so he's feeling kind of shunned too. And so he's ready for a fight against Israel. Now, behind the scenes, we're told in 2 Chronicles 25 that God is behind all of this. God is setting Amaziah up for failure. Why is God setting Amaziah up for failure? Because Amaziah brought the false gods of the Edomites back. And because he wouldn't listen to the prophet who chastised him because of this. And so God is setting the king of Judah up for a fall. This becomes somewhat of a watershed moment between Israel and Judah. Now, things had not always been rosy between Israel and Judah, but usually when faced with difficulties, the two nations, because they've been one people, and now there are two nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, because they're all kin folks, when there's trouble, normally they've rallied together, oftentimes to help one another out. But look at what Amaziah is doing here with this challenge to the Israelite king. He's basically setting up a civil war between Israel and Judah. That's what he's inviting. Joash, the king of Israel, responds by saying, Congratulations on your victory over Edom. Good job. Go home and enjoy your success. You don't want any of me. Is basically what the king of Israel is telling the king of Judah. Uh, he includes some sarcasm. He refers to Amaziah as a thistle trying to challenge a cedar. Well, Amaziah wouldn't let it go. And so the two of them meet in war. Sure enough, Judah is defeated. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The temple treasures there in Jerusalem are taken. 
Amaziah is captured as well as some other hostages. After that, Jehoash's death, the king of Israel, his death is recorded in sort of an uneventful fashion. Then we're told what the people of Judah must have felt about Amaziah. There must have been some deep resentment that he had picked a fight with their northern kinfolks and they'd suffered the loss that they did. And so what, what does his own people do? They, uh, they uh, attack Amaziah, they kill him, and they put his son on the throne. The fact that they put his son on the throne is an indication they're basically just angry at Amaziah. They're not holding it against his family. Azariah, his son, that they put on the throne is also known as Uzziah. Now, what do you remember about Uzziah? Anybody? Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Uzziah has died after reigning for 52 years and a good reign. And Isaiah and the people of Judah see Uzziah is now dead and he's wondering what's going to happen in the nation now. And in that vision, God reminds Isaiah the prophet that he is still on his throne. And he is high and lifted up. Well, back to Azariah's dad a moment. Amaziah. He's surely a case of pride goes before destruction. Again, he was a good king, not a godly king, but he was a good king. He allowed his head to swell in pride when he defeated the, the Edomites. And then he made some stupid choices. <clears throat> Is there pride in your life that is keeping you from humbling yourself before God? Is there some pride in your life that's leading you to make some pretty stupid choices? You and I need to deal with pride. Pride goes before a fall. Sometimes when it comes to pride, we might think we're above being kicked down a notch. And I tell you what, God can kick you down a notch really quickly. So don't be like Amaziah. Filled with pride over successes you have in life, and then because of that pride, you go out and do foolish, stupid stuff. Well, the third thing I want you to see from chapter 14, verse 23, through verse 7 of chapter 15, when rich and yet poor is God's verdict of us. I'll explain that later. When rich and yet poor, Poor is God's verdict of us. In verse 23 of chapter 14, we are taken back to Israel. Again, he's been dealing with Amaziah and Judah and Uzziah who followed Amaziah. Uh, so, but now we're back to Israel, okay? Joash, king of Israel, who had told Amaziah to bring it on, has, has now died. His son Jeroboam comes to power, verse 16 told us. Now we're told in verse 23 that he reigned 41 years. 
He was the longest reigning king of Israel. He was an evil king. He was an evil king. Despite the type of king that he was, God had pity on Israel because their affliction had been so bad. And so through Jonah the prophet, God promised to restore the borders of Israel. Jeroboam II had a rule that was characterized by military success, political expansion, and financial prosperity. Under his leadership, Israel became a major power in the region, and its boundaries rivaled the boundaries that Israel had had during the days of Solomon. But again, all of this was because of God's grace. It wasn't because of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was a capable leader, but he wasn't a good man. He wasn't a godly man. By the way, Amos and Hosea prophesied during this period of time. And what do Amos and Hosea talk about that's going on? The rich are abusing the poor, taking advantage of the poor. The courts were unjust. The judges were corrupt. The judges were taking bribes. The wealthy were living in luxury and ignoring the needs around them. Meanwhile, everybody enjoyed going to religious services paying their offerings, offering their sacrifices. But at the same time, their lives were as corrupt as ever. There's no life change. There was prosperity under Jeroboam II, while there was paganism going on in the streets and even paganism going on in the temple of the Lord. And everybody was satisfied because their wallets were fat. It didn't matter to everybody that they had an ungodly, wicked king. It didn't matter to them that violence was going on in the land and ungodliness and corruption was going on in the land because their pocketbooks were full. And that's all they cared about. They went and did their religious services, said all their little things, paid all their little offerings, went home, went back to their corrupt ways, and they were happy with everything because the economy was good. And nobody cared that their leader was ungodly. Folks, that's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? When people in a nation could care less about what's going on in the nation, what's going on with leadership, as long as their wallets are fat. They were rich and yet poor. And then there was Uzziah, who's mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 15. Again, he's a capable leader. Verse 3 of chapter 15 says Uzziah basically did what was right in God's eyes. And again, you read about Uzziah, he reigned for 52 years. And during his reign, he was a gifted soldier and a military leader. Judah did extremely well militarily under him, and military technology was advanced under him. Uzziah was a great builder. He was a great farmer, too. He believed in working the land. 
And so what do we see at this period in Israel and Judah's history? Both Israel under Jeroboam II and Judah under Uzziah are being prosperous. Both countries respectively are growing. They're doing well economically. They're prospering. They're growing. The problem now with Uzziah over Judah is this went to his head. You remember what he did? He decided it wasn't good enough just to be king. He was going to go into the temple and burn incense and so forth and act like he was a priest. The other priest wanted not to do that, but he went ahead and did it anyway. He became angry at the priest who tried to tell him he couldn't be priest. He was king. He wasn't there to take on the role. God had made him a priest. So what did God do to Uzziah? You remember? Marlene? What did he do? Struck him with leprosy. I'm not implying anything about Donna. That's not what I meant at all. Please don't think I meant anything about Donna. But God struck Uzziah with leprosy, and from that time on, he had to go and live in a separate house. While his son, Jotham, became a co-regent alongside of his dad. Because Uzziah was isolated and quarantined. Well, from verse 8 of chapter 15 following, we didn't read that part, we see that Israel, it's, it switches back to dealing with Israel again. Israel was led by one bad king after another. Some of them had very short reigns. Four out of five were even assassinated. The writer of 2 Kings just clicks through the list in rapid fashion. Evil, wicked men served a short amount of time. Boom. One, one gone, another one rises. The other one's not better than the former. He's dead, he's gone. That's what's going on here. And I think the lesson that God is telling us here is sometimes God doesn't give us the leaders that we need. He gives us the leaders that we deserve. Like <laughs> now, yes. <clears throat> Now, the chapter does close with a bright spot. In Judah, Jotham, who had taken over publicly when his dad Uzziah was stricken with leprosy, he did a good job. He does right in the eyes of the Lord. And so 2 Chronicles 27 verse 6 summarizes his life by saying that he became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. Isn't that a great statement? He ordered his ways before the Lord his God. God directed his steps. So as far as Judah's concerned, the chapter ends by, by giving this bright spot. Uh, talking about <clears throat> Jotham ruling alongside of his dad, Uzziah. Well, what are some lessons tonight? Pride is sinful and dangerous. It causes us to lose dependency on God and to make careless and unwise decisions. 
Secondly, and I've given you some blanks to fill in here, countries can prosper economically and yet be spiritually destitute. Countries can prosper economically and yet be spiritually destitute. And just like I said here, folks, the character of a nation will eventually catch up with it. You mark it down. You look through history. The character of a nation will eventually catch up with it. What caused the Roman Empire, for example, to collapse? Enemies without or what did it begin with crumbling within? Became crumbling from within. Immorality and corruption from within. And the mighty Roman Empire came crumbling down. That ought to be a lesson for people, shit. A third lesson. Leaders can be a source of blessing or cursing. Just because somebody holds an office of leadership does not guarantee that they are the person whom the people need. In fact, a leader might be God's judgment on people. So you can see how we read First and Second Kings, it kind of has a contemporary ring about it, doesn't it? It really does. Okay. Any thoughts you have? I heard Dr. McGee say one time that uh, this country cannot be destroyed with bombs or foreign countries. Right. We can destroy ourselves. Sure. And that seems to be the path Americans take. Corruption within. Immorality, perversion, and corruption and violence within. And sadly, those things are even celebrated for some strange reason. Those things, vices are celebrated and virtues are demonized. Good is, e- good is called evil, and evil is called good, just like the Scripture says. Mm-hmm. And even our children that were raised in Christian homes and my faith, come home and walk away. Yep. 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 When we, read, when we read chapters like this, uh, and then you go through history and read about other nations, you, you, it's kind of scary. You have to ask yourself, how long can we continue as a nation on the path we're on? What are our children, what are our grandchildren going to inherit? And what would be the solution for a nation? To turn back to God. To turn back to God. 